welcome. Uh, first off, I I don't know how to express this. I am I am so giddy right now. I guess there's a a word similar to fan girling, but I'm a fan boy. Just absolutely a fan. Suzanne Stabile, thank you for your time today. It's a privilege to have you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you, and I uh, appreciate your uh, affirmation of my work. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, in in anticipation of this, I was looking at the lifeinthetrinity.com. I was so impressed. I don't think I quite realized the catalog of things that you've created about the Enneagram on that website. And uh, I would love to hear a little bit about that before we go into your new book. Well, I've been at this for a long time. And um, I learned the Enneagram from Richard Rohr. And he has always said, still does, that my best gift is synchronicity. Hmm. And so it's kind of how I think. And so when I learned the Enneagram and when um, I received it in the way that I did, which is almost organic for me, mm. it, it's like I, I, it's my language that I just didn't know yet. Mm-hmm. And um, so as a result, there was no reason for me to redo the work that had been done. And my intuitive approach was to talk about the Enneagram and. So that's where all that came from. And it's just essentially applying the Enneagram to different parts of our lives. Mm -hmm. And then I think it it, uh, offers most people an opportunity to really want to learn more and use it Mm. more and understand it at a greater depth in order to be better and do better. Mm. I think I, it might've been through you. I had heard it a number of years ago that it is possibly the greatest tool for self-reflection and even self-compassion to best understand our own pitfalls is such a great thing. Yeah. It is. It actually answers Paul's question of why do I do the very thing I don't want to do. <laughs> I've never connected those two together. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a few things I'd like to talk to Paul about. Should heaven be the place where I get to? But one of the first one is going to be, hey, I know why you do the very thing you don't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, I always thought his line where he talks about, I become all things to all people that I might save some. Sometimes that sounds like the pitfall of a three. I don't know. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So, well, your newest book is something that I got a hold of this past fall, The Journey Toward Wholeness. And my goodness, I think I'm at a, as an Enneagram five, I'm Mm -hmm. at, I'm endlessly looking now for somebody to say something new to me about the Enneagram. And this book actually went pretty pretty deep into the preferred centers. Uh, uh, the, you use a different language for the triads, but we have preferred and supporting and repre- repressed centers, head, heart, or gut. But I was actually most fascinated by how you expounded on stances about yeah. how every every person's got one of three. Could you maybe share about that? Sure. Um, essentially, that is, um, is building on 
the work of Maurice Nicole and Karen Horney combined, along with Gertie. Mm. And so uh, Maurice Nicole in the 1940s said there are three centers of intelligence. He lived in England and wrote a paper about that, and everybody kind of said, you know, you're right. And they are thinking, feeling, and doing. But the place where that is important to the Enneagram is that we, uh, depending on what number we are, receive information from the environment by first asking the same question every time, Mm. which is either what do I feel, what do I think, or what am I going to do? And um, that way of taking in information is the first place that we begin to fall into imbalance as human beings in terms of our centers of intelligence. Mm. And then another one of the centers, um, so I'm a two on the Enneagram, so I take in information with what do I feel. You're a five, you take in information. Your first question is, what do I think? Mm-hmm. There's another center that supports your dominant or preferred center, and that's your supportive center. And uh, for you, that's feeling. So you uh, think first, and then you have feelings about what you think, and then you think about your feelings about what you think. <laughs> and <laughs> I take in information with feelings, but generally my um, uh, use of the feeling center is that I feel what other people feel. It's actually very difficult for me to know what I feel. Wow. So uh, in responding to what other people feel, I respond with doing. Mm. And I do that for good reasons and for manipulative reasons and for healthy and unhealthy reasons. Mm -hmm. But that's my way of being in the world. Where that leaves the two of us is I'm thinking repressed and you're doing repressed. And uh, we both use that center as part of what we led with as children. But for whatever reason, it didn't work. Mm. So... um, we end up between the ages of eight and 12, only using two of the three centers most of the time. And that's one of the reasons that we uh, are tired. That's one of the reasons we don't always make good decisions or have good responses. And what creates the imbalance is first of all, that we take in information with one center. And then secondly, we further create imbalance by only using two of the three centers to process or make sense of and then decide what to do with the information that we've taken in. I learned stances mm. from Hurley and Donson, and I think they are actually the unsung heroes of the Enneagram. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. from my uh, years of teaching and working with people, I think that's where all the magic is in learning to bring up your repressed center. That's where the magic is to exactly. bring up the repressed you know, I I think I've um, shifted in my own personal life to stop thinking so much about my strengths mm-hmm. and trying to start recognizing more of the, the things that are overlooked or I guess you could say repressed, like you said. It's just a part of that. Well, I'm a fan of Roar as well. The second half of life is all about finally looking at that dark side. But I, you said something just now that caught me and it was – that this can even take root as young as eight years old, where we start having a part of our life that we just kind of put aside, like that skill set doesn't work in my life, so I'm just not going to pick them up again. Pretty much, and you know, uh, of course, we all think and feel and do. We we all do that. So mm-hmm. let me give you an example. 
Um, I was adopted uh, at birth, but my parents already had biological sons who were 18 and 15. And uh, I grew up in a small farming community in the panhandle of Texas. Mm-hmm. And in the 1950s, my dad was a doc. He built, he and my mom built the first hospital there in the 1930s. And um, everybody knew him. And when they adopted me, I always knew that I was adopted. And there was no really entertainment in the town in Floydata, Texas, where I grew up. Uh-huh. So people entertained themselves and one another in generational groups and in each other's homes. And um, that left me one or two nights a week with uh, probably five families Mm. having dinner together, except all of the other families were my parents' age. So there were no other children. Just me. And when you're the only child in an all-adult group, nobody really cares what you think. Mm. So the play, and it's not a, I mean, it's just a reality. It's Mm -hmm. not. Right. It's just it's just a reality. And so Mm -hmm. I learned that I could pick up on their feelings and then do something for them or get something for them and get all of the goodies I could ever want. Mm. And then you end up just kind of carrying that through life. You know, I've done postgraduate work. I uh, three books like I think. But I had to be told that thinking is repressed for me to understand that my thinking is really not terribly productive. Wow. So we don't have time to talk about every number. We can talk about yours and mine. So I don't know when you gave up doing or why you gave up doing. But what I know is that you have made your way through life predominantly with thinking and feeling. Mm. And you plan to do more than you do. Like you kind of planning to do something kind of feels like doing it and it almost counts. And so you do a lot of planning and my thinking, I think a lot, but most of my thinking is about relationships. Mm. And as it turns out, that's just inadequate. There are a lot of other things that need to be thought about. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we don't use all three centers, but the imbalance is significant. And the key is to use all three centers each for its own purpose. For its own purpose, not to hijack it for your reasons. That's right. What is that? Well, an example would be, uh, you know, thinking is for analyzing and seeing where patterns overlap and logic. I'm totally illogical. (laughs) I uh, am not about analyzing. I don't need to analyze things. Because I'm relational. So I make my way that way. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But the problem is then um, I spent my life moving toward other people, figuring out what they needed and offering it without asking the three questions that I've learned to ask. Mm. So as I start to move toward someone, I now say to myself, why am I moving toward this other person? What, if anything, do I expect to get in return? Mm. And does the other person want my help? Do they even want it? That's a great question. And lots uh, of times they don't. That's, I mean, Jesus at one point, is it John 5? 
Before he heals the paralytic, he asks, do you even want to be well? Yep. That is so profound. How liberating for Jesus, at least, to be ahead of that curve. Yep. Um, And and on the other end of that, let's talk about Martha. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus is going to Lazarus' house for dinner. And Mary and Martha are there to greet him. And Jesus, and now I know you're a theologian, so just take a deep breath and do what you can with this. But because <laughs> um, I'm not, but uh, Mary and Jesus are in the family room chatting it up, and Martha's in the kitchen. And it's hot, and she's tired. She cleaned house first. She found out what Jesus really likes to eat. She went to the market and got the food. Mm. She's preparing that for him for dinner because she's serving him. Mm. Mary is in the front room learning from him. And as any two would, Martha goes in and says, uh, are you going to let her just sit here? I'm, I'm in there doing all the work and trying to take care of you. And Mary's just sitting here talking to you. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part. Mm. So what I've learned from that, my husband is a lectionary preacher. So mm-hmm. I get to hear that lovely story every three years. Every three years. Yeah. Yep. But what I've learned from that is that the fact that you think you're serving God doesn't always mean you're serving God. Wow. Sometimes you're just serving yourself. And is that the, the, the shift? Is that the, what's the word I want to look for? Um, maturity. And I, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, James Fowler and the idea that hopefully Christian spirituality, this is what I teach in my class, is that it can actually help you to wake up, grow up, clean up your life in all these ways, mature up. And I actually teach the Enneagram as a part of the growing up part of life, of learning to mature up and recognize these things, these patterns that we all do. Yeah. But it's- and, the, and that's a great use of the Enneagram. And, and an additional use would be to say, you're going to find it very difficult to grow up and to make the right decisions in real time without using all three centers. Without using your head, your heart, and your gut. Okay. And so Hmm. because we take in information with uh, our dominant center, which is what triads are made of, the reality is that you, you have to learn to manage your dominant center in order to make room for your repressed center. To make room for it. Okay. So I have to uh, dial it back on the feelings a little bit mm. and be other than lazy in my relationships with other people. If I'm going to figure out what my part's supposed to be or what my role is or where my place is and where my space is. And that requires thinking. Mm-hmm. There's a, a part of me that thinks, I, being around church circles, I've actually really tried to impress the importance of trying to do self-awareness. To me, like Augustine is all about it. Even so is John Calvin and some of his parts. But I would love to hear from you, a master, about the Enneagram. What would you maybe say to somebody that still is keeping the Enneagram at arm's distance? What do you think would be your advice to them? Uh, well, that's, that's a five-part discussion probably. So let me start with Okay. This. 
Um, I've been teaching for a long time, 30 years. So um, the reality is that when people kind of lean in a little bit, often from evangelical circles, and say, tell me what's dangerous about the Enneagram. Mm. <laughs> and I was asked that enough times that I thought, you know, I really need to think and pray about that because that's, that's going to keep being a question. Mm. So what, what's my answer? And my answer is that it's only dangerous if you take it to be more than it is. It's just one yeah. spiritual tool. Mm. It's just one. It's a really good one. And it's actually better if you use it in tandem with others, like uh, contemplative practice mm -hmm. and like a spiritual practice that uh, kind of makes you move toward the edge of your repressed center. Mm. So I read a lot, but I need to read in order to bring up thinking. I need to read people I disagree with. I need to read mm. people who are a stretch for me. I need to not read memoirs and biographies and right. Like there, mm -hmm. there are things I can do to bring up thinking. I need to engage in conversations with people who are experts in their field, if not mine, so that I can have to step up into a conversation. Mm. And so, um, so th that's, that's part one. Um, <laughs> Part two is, um, what's your question? <laughs> what advice would you say to someone that is still Got holding it. the Enneagram at a distance? Got it. Part two is, uh, I've heard more times than I can tell you, uh, the Enneagram just puts people in a box. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually it doesn't. It shows you the box that you're already in. Mm-hmm. And it gives you clues as to how get, to get out of it should you want to. Mm -hmm. Third, uh, trendy Enneagram is not very valid. I was hoping to come to that question later on at some point. Because it feels as though the Enneagram, luckily, I guess you could say, has faded in its pop culture popularity. Which means the people that still talk about it at this point... They're the ones that actually see it as a wisdom tradition more than a party trick. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's no? maybe it's faded some, but okay. it's still pretty trendy. Is it? Oh yeah. Yeah, I get all kinds of oh, you'll think this is cute, and it's how everybody uh decided what to wear for Halloween based on their Enneagram oh. number. Or mm -hmm. how about this? Here are, here are nine salads. Which one would each number like? You know, nonsense like that. Right. So the reality is that those of us who have been teaching for a long time, you know, the Enneagram is very, very old. Mm -hmm. It's ancient wisdom. And those of us who have been teaching uh, and who te teach deep Enneagram work were quite sure that this time would come. And concerned about it all along because Is that right? Yeah. We knew Wow. We, we all knew that at some point, you know why? Because everybody loves to know about themselves. <laughs> We're all a little selfish. Right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of everybody's favorite topic. 
at the end of the day. Oh. It, right. And so um, we knew it would come. Right. Um, I don't think though, when I first started sharing my concern about it with my colleagues, social media was not such a thing. So mm. it, it would have never occurred to us back then that it would come as quickly and mm. um, be shared as frequently. There, and I'm not, uh, not everybody agrees with me about this, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I don't trust any test or indicator. And here's why. The, the Enneagram, your number is determined by your motivation for your behavior, not, mm-hmm. for your, not by your behavior. Your number is determined by your motivations, not by your behavior. Oh, because two people could have the same behavior, but they're motivated yep. for different reasons. Okay, gotcha. Exactly. Yep. Got it? Yep. And, and uh, the best indicator is the Reso Hudson indicator, 140 questions mm-hmm. that you pay for on Enneagram Institute. It's the best one. Right. And Russ Hudson is my friend, and he knows that I tell everybody that it's the best one. And that I don't like any of them. <laughs> I hope to catch him at some point too. <laughs> he's pretty great. Oh man, he's he seems like a great smart. person. Oh, he's so so smart. Mm. You should catch him. Okay, great. Uh, but um, he he readily says, "This is as good. Ours is as good as it can be," and I agree with that. That his is as good as it can be. Oh, interesting. And so, I, you know, nothing was written about the Enneagram until the 1970s. Yes. Part of that. That tradition yeah, is fascinating. There, there is no body of work. People, different people's notes were found or their journals were found or oral traditions were uncovered mm. in every faith belief. But there was not a, you know, you couldn't just run to the library and mm-hmm. check out whatever you wanted, right? And, um, as soon as publishing began in the 1970s, then the only option we have is to teach all nine numbers. But prior to that, uh, wisdom teachers who knew the Enneagram would only teach you your number. Huh. Because you're the only person you can do anything about. Right? Oh, my goodness. Is that, um, you just reminded me of Ignatius of Loyola says, you want to change the world? Great. Change yourself first or else everything will be in vain. Yep. Oh, man. That's it. And so, you know, people come here to our center and want to uh, uh, talk about parenting. They want to know mm. well, how they can be the best parents. And my answer is be the healthiest person you can be. Wow. How can I be better at my job? Be the healthiest person you can be. Wow. It's the answer over and over and over. And the Enneagram certainly does assist in that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons it's so great is because it's accessible. Everybody can understand the Enneagram. You don't have to have the degrees that I'm sure you have in order to understand the Enneagram. And Mm -hmm. so when I'm invited into a church with a really big staff to Mm -hmm. teach and they say, well, who should come on our staff? Who should come? Everybody should come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, 
I think when people hear the Enneagram taught orally by someone who knows what they're talking about, which mm-hmm. isn't everyone who's teaching orally, mm-hmm. but by someone who is, then you, you are able to recognize yourself more easily mm-hmm. than when you're trying to learn it a different way. And if I can maybe share one more thing, and then I've got two final questions for you, if you don't mind. Okay. It's uh, when I first read Richard Rohr's Enneagram book, I think it might have been in 2014, so about eight years ago. I actually felt two parts to it is one is I was, I felt so affirmed, yet also so is revealed the right word? I, I felt so exposed. Yep. But it, it was such a strange both and of feeling affirmed and exposed. I like, I, I didn't know these depths about myself. And that maybe that's a part of that second half of life journey. But well, let me say three things about that. Mm. Um, the first is uh, I love Richard's work on falling upward. Um, actually, uh, we did a virtual event together uh, right when it first came out. Uh-huh. Um, however, Joe and I, uh, I'm 71 and my husband is 74. And we're still working full time, both of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have now divided life into thirds. Is that right? And Yep. We're living in the third third. And it brings with it different limitations and different questions Mm. and a different kind of wisdom. And I think for people who are in the third third, Mm. it's a better way to look at it than first half and second half. Mm. Okay. Um, I I think second half of life uh, was great before people were saying 60 is the new 40. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is not true. Anybody who said that isn't 60. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not true. Okay. But, but, you know, we're living longer now, which divides life Mm -hmm. uh, in a different way. Sure. And our goal in starting to talk about the third third was hope that we could get our generation. We're both baby boomers. We could get our generation to to stay engaged Mm. and share what they've learned and mentor younger people and share the wisdom that they have rather than, okay, I worked my part and now I'm retiring and now I'm headed to, you know, wherever. Mm -hmm. And then it just turned out to be a way of looking at things that really worked for us. Mm. Also in in relationship to the Enneagram and, and you're referencing Richard's work. And that is that, the Enneagram shows you exactly what's wrong with you and exactly how to heal that at exactly the same time. Wow. And it's the only system I know that does that, which is kind of what makes it different from Myers-Briggs and the other things that all have their purpose. I don't have anything against any of them. Mm-hmm. But there is no system that, that offers you a good look at yourself that also shows you where you fall short mm-hmm. and that you have everything you need to do better. Mm. You have the resources All of within it. you already. Already. 
So you, wow. you, you just have to make room for them and mm. learn to access them at appropriate times. Mm. And I'm not saying that Enneagram work that is aimed at, towards spiritual transformation is easy. Mm. But what I am saying is that it's possible. And I think if we're appropriately educated and we have the appropriate tools at the, the opportune times, then we really have a chance to do some good work. So mm. when I wrote my new book, it opens with a chapter on liminality. And when I wrote it, um, I had just read Thomas Friedman, Thank You for Being Late. And I was thinking about liminal space because of that. Uh-huh. I sold my book to IVP before the pandemic. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So I told my husband, I said, you know, I think I'm a prophet. He said, do you really want to? <laughs> he said, do you really want to be? They kill those prophets. Oh, you know? yeah, they do. Yeah. I backed up a little bit. said, well, maybe not. <laughs> um, but um, liminality then kind of started. And there had been some things written in the last four or five years, I guess. Not many people were talking about liminal space. And I went back and looked at my journals and Richard Rohr uh, talked to Joe and me about liminality 19 years ago. No kidding. So we kind of had known that for a while. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a thing. And I uh, have been talking about the difference in change and transformation for a long time. Between and I'm change and transformation. They're not mm-hmm. the same thing. Okay. Uh, no. And I think change occurs when you take on something new mm-hmm. and transformation occurs when something old falls away, usually beyond your control. Mm. So That's if cool. I put that together mm-hmm. with Richard's teaching, uh, with Richard's... Uh, the true self, false self? Well, his and Merton's and... But when, when I put that together with Richard's teaching about liminality, which is uh, 19 years ago, he said, you know, um, there are those of us who believe that liminal space is the most teachable space. And then he followed that with, in fact, it might be the only teachable space. Wow. So then my question for right now is, we are still in liminal space. Mm-hmm. What did we learn? Did we even pay attention to what we might could learn? Mm. Do we have a way of making enough sense of what we learned that we can do better? And um, I... I I don't know that very many people are asking that. What am I learning? Mm-hmm. It's more who do I agree with or who do I disagree with? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, things are very, very dualistic mm-hmm. and very politicized and uh, very oppositional and people are in camps. And, mm. you know, my hope for the Enneagram is that uh, on two or three or five sides of any subject 
all nine numbers can find a home in one mm. of those places. Mm. The question is, can they teach one another and learn from one another in a way to kind of uh, raise everybody up instead of having to divide again and again mm. and again? I, uh, maybe if, if you don't mind, I want to make sure we respect your time. First off, this is probably the highlight of my month. I don't want, Thank I'm not, you. I'm not even exaggerating. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, um, I think a, a long time ago when I first looked at the website, the life in the Trinity.com, I loved the tagline for a place for solitary work that cannot be done alone. If you have a punchy statement, that's definitely one of them. I'm sitting in the MICA Center right now, and our tagline here is that the MICA Center, our center, is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. Mm. You, you will not do good spiritual transformational work without a community. Mm. You will not do it. You'll plan to do it. You'll pray about doing it. You'll journal about doing it. You'll talk about doing it, but you won't do it mm. because it's too hard. You have to have somebody who holds your feet to the fire, depending on your Enneagram number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to have somebody who uh, says to a thinker like you, well, what are you going to do with all that? You have to have somebody who says to me, I get that you feel very strongly about this and that you want to do something about this. But what do you think we should do? Mm. And I have to have people around me who say, uh, you know, you're, you're really behaving badly. Sometimes Joe says, are you aware that you're being kind of bitchy? No. Oh, in a heartbeat. <laughs> Which is why I'm not as bitchy as I used to be. The transformation part. Well, it's having somebody to remind you or hold up a mirror for you that says, this is what you said, this is what you did, this is how it sounds, this is how it feels, is that who you want to be? Mm. Is this who you want to be? I like the question also of how long do you want to be like this? Yeah. I've heard it that way too. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so the, the, the goal of um, my new book. You know, my first book is a primer, and I think it's really a good one. Mm -hmm. Um, The second book is about relationships, and I think it's a good one. Yeah, that one, This the green ones, I love that one. Yeah, me too. (laughs) The uh, This one, though, is kind of about who, who are you, And who do you think God is? And who are you in relationship to God? Mm. And what are you willing to do to be who you're created to be? And I think, uh, as you know, because you've read the book, that the the final chapter in the book is titled, What Are You Willing to Give Up for Transformation? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we have a helpful answer to that question Mm. until we've done some work with, uh, being thinking, feeling, or doing dominant, mm. being thinking, feeling, or doing repressed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what I have to give up is a lot of schmoozing for some uh, good, deep thinking. Mm. And I can actually achieve 
sometimes the same goal, faster schmoozing, mm. but not with much as much respect for other people. Oh, wow. And so I think if we're going to continue to talk about spiritual transformation, which also had its day in the uh, light in terms of trendy, 40 years oh. ago, 40 years ago, spiritual transformation was kind of a new thing to talk about, and it was very trendy. Mm. Spiritual transformation and angels were trendy at about the same time. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, I'm in a spiritual formation group where I'm working on spiritual transformation. I have a spiritual transformation journal. I'm <laughs> doing transformative spiritual work. Uh, All the ways you say that. But if you can't know yourself mm -hmm. and if you can't uh, appropriately handle the totality of who you are, transformation is going to be pretty elusive. Mm. Mm. And then I think people just give up and say, you know, I really, I really wanted to work on this, but I don't know what happened. I fell back into the same old ruts or routines. Mm -hmm. That's that gift of actually self-awareness of, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I have one last question for you, if you don't mind. It's a fun okay. one, though. What is uh, it? If you could write your next Enneagram book about anything, if you could, do you have an idea? What would you like to see the Enneagram address next? Um, right now, it's, it, I don't know if I'm going to write another book, but it, right now it's kind of all part of one big topic, which is moral injury. Moral injury, yeah. I'm very concerned about grieving. And I've mm -hmm. done quite a bit of work on grieving. So I really always thought that I would, uh, after I wrote The Journey Toward Wholeness, I'd probably write a book on Enneagram and grieving. I think we're at a real loss uh, collectively because we don't have any idea how to grieve. I mm -hmm. don't think the church, regardless of denomination, has done a good job teaching us how to grieve. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are a lot of really tragic and sad byproducts of not being able to grieve. So that's a thing. Absolutely. Um, Brian McLaren's been trying, you know, Brian McLaren's work. I do. I would love to interview him next about, uh, was it beyond doubt? The most recent one. And I know he has an upcoming one as well. Yeah, he does. I'm, I'm fascinated by him. Well, you need to, you need to get yourself a plane ticket and come to Dallas the last day of March and the first two days of April, because Brian and my husband Joe and I are doing a three-day conference uh, on uh, faith after doubt and biases and stages what will we of do? faith. What will we do now? What will we do now? Wow. Next, what will we do next is the actual uh, title, and so. Um, it's on our uh, web. I will absolutely look that up after this. You just come right on. So, Brian, um, I believe there are more sixes than other numbers. Mm -hmm. And Brian has known that for a long time. He's a good friend. And uh, he wants me to write a book about sixes. Hmm. In fact, he's even titled it Sixology. Because <laughs> I just keep saying, I don't think that's mine to do. So he uh. just 
he was trying to find new ways to get me to do it. But here's what he says. He says that there is no turning big institutions without awareness and understanding of sickness and as it is understood and taught in the Anglican. And I think that's because sixes are the number on the Enneagram that's the most concerned about the common good. Sixes are the number on the Enneagram that ask so many questions. Mm-hmm. Sixes are the number on the Enneagram that tend to attach to belief systems because they don't trust themselves. Sixes are uh, the people on the Enneagram who hold together all of the organizations that we belong to mm. because they don't leave over what they would consider to be inconsequential things. Right. Be interesting to see uh, three or four years from now, having observed churches and clergy and pastors and people in ministry come through uh, what we're experiencing right Mm -hmm. now, whatever that's going to look like. It'll be interesting to see where sickness is and all of that. Mm. So the answer is, uh, I don't know what book I'm going to write. Now here's the book I, would write if I thought I could and if I thought it would make a difference. Mm-hmm. I would uh, partner with someone who is uh, very wise in terms of uh, world history and political science mm-hmm. and politics. And I would hope that with enough good minds together, we might be able to make some suggestions and an offering that would significantly affect the ineffectiveness of our uh, way of living in the political system we have in light of what it's becoming in terms of its duality mm-hmm. and dualistic nature. And I'm, you know, I'm 71. And if Joe wants to stop working and go hang out somewhere, then I, that's what I want to do because I'm crazy in love with him. So I, I don't, I don't know if that's coming, but I sure hope somebody who loves the Enneagram and who, who learns it from those who came before me Mm-hmm. And me, if I have anything to offer, will do something to affect the shortcut that we use politically mm-hmm. to pit one side against another rather than trying to find a third way forward. The third way. Absolutely. Uh, let me finish with this. This was an absolute joy for me. And, uh, it's, I think you do just inspiring things and I I've loved it from a distance. I think the world needs more healers like you. And I I just want to say my gratitude. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'll see you in early April. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Um, 